0: Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 510, The Up and Down Paradox. Now, before we get started this week, I'd like to ask you to do us a favor. If you're watching on YouTube live or watching on YouTube even after the fact, go ahead, take a moment right now to share this on your favorite social media platform. If you share this with the hashtag Impact Nations, you will automatically be entered to win a $40 gift certificate to the Impact Nations store. Uh, We'd love for your friends to find out more about the Impact Nations podcast. We're hearing from all over the world. People are loving it, and we'd just like to have more people watching. Now, I'll go ahead kill time. You go do the sharing thing. This week, uh, we're beginning kind of a mini-series, if you will, on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're asking questions such as, is the Sermon on the Mount a new law, or is it something bigger than that? And how do the Beatitudes point to the death and resurrection of Christ? And ultimately, does it matter where this sermon was delivered? We've got answers to those questions and more as we continue our study on the Gospel of Matthew.
1: Well, hello, everyone. It's good to be together again uh, as we're continuing this podcast series on the Gospel of Matthew. We've had a couple of great interviews with some of our friends who are theologians that have helped shine some light. Uh, Today, I, I come to this session with a real sense of anticipation, because uh, today I'm introducing like a series within a series, namely the Sermon on the Mount. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is the the single greatest collection of Jesus' teaching found in Matthew, Um, some would say anywhere in the Gospels. Uh, It's the first of of five discourses. And and the Sermon on the Mount— lays out the ethics of the kingdom. Uh, Ethics that go beyond uh, appearance or actions, they they touch the deepest motivations of the heart. We're going to see how that develops, especially next week. (coughs) Excuse me. The sermon finishes with a real challenging section at the very end, at the end of chapter 7. Where Jesus says, Whoever hears my words and puts them into practice has built their their life on a rock. Um yet Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount can seem uh so demanding that that over the last hundred and fifty years or so, there has been uh The rise of a number of interpretations of the sermon, which turn away from a literal obedience. I've told you before, Matthew is the most ethical of the four Gospels. And and one of the the strong themes running through this Gospel is, what does it mean to be a disciple? And for Matthew, uh, discipleship and obedience are inseparable. So let's really quickly look at, at some of these different interpretations or approaches to the Sermon on the Mount. Some of them you may be familiar with, maybe even from your own church tradition. Uh, the first one is that the, the uh, ethical demands of the sermon are, are impossibly high and meant to be impossibly high. They're supposed to drive us back to the grace of God by showing us uh, our inability to live by Jesus' standards. As we're going to see, I think that this interpretation really puts the emphasis once again on a, on a personal, almost a private individual piety and does not consider, uh, consider the church at large. A second interpretation that really uh, rose up in the last part of the 19th century and probably the first 40 years of the 20th century and is still going in some streams says that the the sermon gives us uh, uh, guidelines for, for living, that, that if we would only follow them, if society wouldn't follow them, there'd be kind of an, a utopian existence of peace and prosperity. And this was a really strong thing, and then along came World War One, and in case the church didn't get it, along came World War II. A third major approach to interpreting the sermon is, a, is it what's called a dispensational interpretation. And really what they're saying is, well, Jesus was describing the way it's going to be in the future. Some said during a, a thousand year reign. Some said after the reign. But the point is, it's, it's his second coming. And it wasn't meant, th- this sermon wasn't meant to be experienced in this present fallen world. There's another view that some of us were influenced by uh, in my early days, which essentially presented the sermon as a new law. Um, that that it, it, in one sense it was like the Old Testament, Torah, because it it was meant to push us to try harder, to be more diligent, to be more persistent. and And this approach really, I think, turns gospel into law, and yet it's very prevalent. Um, and and it overlooks God's supernatural empowerment. I had a pastor who years ago used to put it this way. In the Old Testament, uh, there was a command, thou shalt not kill. But because of the grace of God and the empowering of his presence, now that's a promise, thou shalt not kill. However, what I want to focus on a little bit is from the earliest days of the church, a tradition that is now 2,000 years old, the sermon was seen to be the the wisdom from God. And it invites all of those who want to follow the Jesus way as his disciples, it invites them to reorient their their values, their habits, their vision, in fact, their whole lives. Um, But it's a very costly and and if we go deep into this sermon, it's, it's an unsettling shift because it shifts us away from this primal, universal protection of the ego self to the emptying of, uh, of self. It calls us out of a private faith and calls us to bring Christ's rescuing and restoring kingdom to the world. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that the kingdom is a central theme in Matthew's gospel. So the sermon is not a new law. It's good news. That's what gospel means. It's an invitation into what it means to live in the reality of heaven right now. It is so easy for us as the church to push heaven off uh, to a future time. For some of us, it's even a a a different spatial realm. It's out there. But but that's not what it's about. The sermon invites us into heaven right now. It invites us into Christ's life within us. Now, Jesus does address externals of of right action uh, toward the world around us, but he grounds it all upon our interior lives, our relationship with Him. Our hearts have got to change so that our motivations and then our actions can change. Um, it's a very public faith that calls us to, to live out of an interior relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And without that interior relationship, no matter how good it looks, ultimately it's, it's inauthentic. Jesus addressed with uh, some forcefulness uh, the religious leaders of his day he, he said you hypocrites which literally means you you play actors and what he's talking about is is what we can all fall into this this living externally but not out of out of a place of of uh, authentic relationship so with that little bit of an overview I want to talk about setting, because setting is so important in Matthew. Um, Let's look at the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up uh, the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to speak, and he taught them. We've talked earlier, and if you want, uh, if you're new to this series, you can go to, to the first... Two weeks, as I was laying a foundation. But we've talked about what's called the the historical critical method, and uh, it's the it became the predominant method of of reading interpreting scripture, especially among evangelicals, and it was highly influenced by the Enlightenment um, of the eighteenth uh, century. Uh, the the historical critical method. Uh, is based on the materialism of the Enlightenment, that what is real is what you can see. And so, it, this, this view of Scripture uh, tends to downplay the supernatural. In some cases, it excludes it by saying that doesn't happen anymore. So, the, the historical critical method couldn't read the Bible as, as a revealing of the mystery of the Lord, the, the transcendence of the Lord. Instead, it, it became propositional truth. This is how God is. If we do this, this is what God does. I used to hear all the time God cannot violate His own word. Um, he is so far beyond even our Bibles, although our Bibles are His wonderful gift to us. But folks, they're not an owner's manual. They're not, oh, well, if you do this, then this will happen. They, they're a love letter from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it is almost impossible for me to overestimate the influence of, of the 19th century of, of the, this historical critical method. We're so used to looking at the Bible that way uh, that we forget that the the Bible's not two-dimensional, as I've said many times, that, that, that the words of the Bible have a life beyond their original meaning you know since the beginning of the church the church fathers have insisted that there were multiple depths of meaning to be found in every verse and and so for the for the church Matthew's gospel was not merely a historical narrative every part of it every word every phrase uh was about his revelation of himself. Every verse was a part of God's intention to disclose his purposes to his children. And therefore, the church fathers approached each text with the certainty of finding a great deal of God's revelation in them. That the, the fathers recognized the layers of meaning that were in every verse and therefore recognized our part in this of of being like miners that were were digging for gold and and that uh for example origin church father from the uh, late 200s he insisted uh, mid 200s he insisted that until we see these begin to see these layers Of meaning that are in the Scripture, Holy Spirit breathed into the Scriptures, until we begin to see those we haven't even begun to understand that verse or passage. And this is such a contrast to what most of us have been exposed to, Um, this historical critical method of, well, this is what it means. You may recall that I said one of the reasons why we're studying Matthew's Gospel is that together I want us to learn how to read scripture in such a way as to find the depths of meaning that are waiting for us. Now, Matthew, like all of the gospels, is so carefully constructed. The more I have studied this book, especially over this past year, the more I've been amazed at at how brilliantly, but intentionally he put it together he's not just telling a narrative story he's telling it in such a way as to reveal great significance so you know (coughs) excuse me um in compiling each of the gospels Every gospel writer had to be selective because, of course, as John says in chapter 21, the whole world wouldn't contain everything that Jesus said and did. So they were leaning upon the Holy Spirit, each one of them, for what they should include. And so because of that, it's really important for us to notice the details. Again, I don't want to keep beating this thing, but but we've really learned that when we understand it in quotations, then we can move on, whereas instead there, there's a depth that will go on and on and on. So I want to review something that I shared the first session and uh, uh, Brad Jerzak shared with us in more depth the second, that when, when we're reading the Scripture, we open up the Scripture, the first level is the literal meaning. Now now by literal, what we mean is what is the truth that Matthew is trying to convey in this passage or this verse? And after we wrestle with that and, and look into that, then we go to the second meaning, which is the moral reading. So first there's a literal reading and then a moral reading, which is uh how does this reveal the Jesus way of living? How does this reveal how to become more Christ-like? And then thirdly, the spiritual or gospel reading. Um, at this point, we're we're moving uh into something that, that we're we're partnering with the Holy Spirit. By the way, I encourage us always when we open our Bibles, take a moment and invite the Holy Spirit's presence to come and ask for Him to bring illumination each time we sit down with the Scriptures. But, but it, what we're getting to now after we go through through the the literal, and I'll I'll review that. What is the truth that Matthew is trying to say um, or reveal? And then the moral reading, how does this show me how to live in a more Christ-like way? And now when we come to this gospel or spiritual reading, we're entering into partnership because by the Holy Spirit, I'm beginning to see things. I'm beginning to get revelation. And, and, and you know, this is called illumination. And therefore, my reading, I'm not passive I'm involved, I'm an active participant in this exchange with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is the spiritual reading. So that's to review something we covered because that's now a couple of months ago. Now, Matthew presents this sermon, what's it called? The Sermon on the Mount. So from the top of a mountain. But in Luke chapter 6, he calls it the Sermon on the Plain. There's a couple of possibilities, and you'll find lots of good commentaries on both sides of this, but I'll share my own opinion in a moment. Why is there Sermon on the Mount and Sermon on the Plain? Well, the first possibility is. That it it could be they could be recording two different times when Jesus was preaching, these were actual sermons when he preached, and Jesus, of course, was an itinerant preacher, so he would would repeat portions of his teaching many times. Any of us who have done itinerant preaching as I've done overseas for years, you know that there's there's pieces that are there within you. And, and you'll bring this one out here and that one out there, but sometimes you'll bring the same one out in two places. So uh, it's very possible that these could be two different sermons, uh, and that's why they take place in two different settings. But the second possibility is this, in, in, and we cannot know for sure, but I tend to think that both Luke and Matthew compiled these sermons from common material but with slight differences of purpose and emphasis. Luke clearly is, his gospel is the most social of the four gospels. Um, And when we compare his version and Matthew's version of the sermon, Luke, for example, is blessed are the poor, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. By the way, that's the only time in the New Testament that phrase appears. Luke says, blessed are those who hunger now. Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, perhaps Luke set this sermon on the plain, literally on a level place, is what the word means. Perhaps he did this to reflect his profoundly inclusive, uh, cultural, barrier-breaking view of the gospel. After all, he's the physician who traveled with with uh, Paul, and, and they went to the Gentiles. And so the plain, um, this level place where the people are all around, Jesus, for Luke, Jesus taught this in the midst of the people. For Matthew, Jesus is on the mountain, and Jesus invites people to follow him. Now, I want to try to touch on something here. That we don't get anxious. Is one of these right and one of these wrong? Is this accurate and this inaccurate? It's really important that we do not confuse that which is factual with that which is the truth. That we don't confuse the literal revealing Jesus' purposes with literalism, which is every word means exactly literally that. Both Luke and Matthew are are using setting to teach a greater truth. I think that Matthew may have placed the setting in order to teach us, uh, he put us put him on the mountain. He placed Jesus on the mountain, as it were, in order to teach us. But it really doesn't matter whether he was literally on the mountain. For my view, it doesn't even matter which, with, if this is a compilation of his teachings or if it's one sermon. I tend to think it's a compilation. So why did he put Jesus on the mountain? Well remember he is writing uh, to a Jewish audience largely. And in the Old Testament, mountains were the place of encounter with Yahweh. Uh, Genesis 22, Abraham, Abraham takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah. Uh, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and then later goes to Mount Horeb, which is probably also Mount Sinai. Later in Matthew's account, one of the, one of the high points of his whole gospel is on a mountain, Mount Tabor, where, where Jesus takes his three disciples for the transfiguration. So let's look a little more. Again, I don't want us to miss any details Look at how far we are on one phrase, and he went up a mountain. In this sermon, Jesus is presented as a new lawgiver, as the fulfillment of the Mosaic promise of Deuteronomy 18, 15. God promises, I'm going to bring you another prophet like unto Moses, but with some significant differences. That's why we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, Jesus has a formula where at least... Five times he says, you've heard it said, but I say. <clears throat> so let's look at the comparison with Moses and the difference. Moses went up to Mount Sinai, but he went up alone. And in fact, this whole setting, when you read it in, in Exodus 19, 20, 21, this whole setting is, is filled with terror, with thunder and lightning. And and the, the people were not even to touch the mountain Or they would die. The severity of the law was given at Mount Sinai. Now, here on this mountain, in contrast, everyone is invited, Uh, all are welcome to be blessed. This is Matthew's gospel. So there's this cosmic shift. I wonder if they were beginning to get it even, but there's this cosmic shift that's beginning on this mountain. It's the dawning of a new age where, where it's reaching the whole world and even the cosmos. This shift from law to grace. So from severity to blessing and mercy. Matthew was aware of the scriptural significance of mountains, but beyond that, Jesus knew that his life and ministry were directly connected to the fulfillment of some key Old Testament prophecies. One of them has been a long time for me, one of my favorite. It's from Isaiah chapter 2, which is also paralleled exactly in Micah chapter 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, "'Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God.'" There he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. Matthew, I promise you, was acutely aware, as every devout Jew would have been, of that great promise of going up to the mountain to encounter God. Isaiah was looking ahead, by the way, about 750 years. The the acuity of his prophecies are remarkable. Um. And maybe one day we'll talk a little bit about prophecy as revealed through through Isaiah, but that's another topic for another time. But I think that Isaiah prophetically was seeing this shift. All right, now it's time. The mountain of the Lord, this is the great shift. And I love, I love this passage from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, now Matthew would have been completely not only aware of this, but I think thinking of this as he wrote down Jesus' teaching from the mountain. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a, rich, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear, and he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all people. The sheet that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth the Lord has spoken. This passage is like a compression of all that what's going to happen through Matthew's gospel. So he goes up. It's a place of great feasting um, on this mountain. um, that's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is presenting a banquet for all people. The kingdom of heaven has come, um, and like a banquet, it's going to fill. It's going to sustain all who come to the table. This theme was so central to Christ. This theme of 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 the Lamb's supper, of a great feast, um, in Revelation. And the angel said to me, write this down, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Jesus used this image of the great feast repeatedly in his teaching. He tells a story of a, of a of man gathering people to a feast in Matthew 22. In Luke 14, Jesus, at the, uh, the last supper, where he shares the elements of the bread and the wine. Uh, chapter 26, verse 29, he says, I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Folks, all of these things, this is why we want to just be living in the Scriptures because the, the, the reservoir of revelation just goes deeper and deeper and wider as as we become more immersed and saturated by the scripture. Can you see some of these themes is what I'm trying to tell you, giving you an example of reading it at different levels. These words spoken from the mountain begin a journey that's going to culminate three years later at the cross, where he will defeat death in Hades, just like what we saw in this prophecy, that he removes the shroud of death. And And uh, the ultimate destiny for all those who respond to his invitation will be, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That's Revelation 21.4. And that's where this journey that begins up the mountain is going. This is a gospel of joy. It's a gospel that will comfort and, and ultimately wipe away sorrow. The father saw the spirit. Spiritual meaning to the mountain. Let me give you a few examples. Um, St. Jerome saw that Jesus was bringing people to higher things. Remember, he said to Nicodemus, If you can't understand earthly things, how will you understand heavenly things? It's in John 3. Uh, Chromatius, another church father whose writings are so rich, he says this, and I quote, The Lord went up the mountain that he might give the precepts of the heavenly commandments to his disciples, leaving the earthly and seeking the sublime things as though already placed on high. He sees a spiritual meaning to him going up the mountain. He sees, in that sense, leaving the earthly things, seeking the sublime things as though already placed on high. He saw the Beatitudes as prophetic, as, as heaven coming down and touching earth. St. Augustine said this, Again, I quote, If we ask what the mountain signifies, it is rightly understood to point toward the gospel's higher righteousness. So for him, it's righteousness. For Jerome, it's it's the connecting of heaven and earth. Through his son, he gave the higher precepts to a people to whom it is fitting to be set free by love. So we, with our 21st century evangelical minds steeped in the enlightenment, steeped in the historical critical method, we say, well, which is it? Is it it that, that heaven and earth are coming together? Or is it what Augustine says, that it's about higher righteousness? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And more than that besides. So now let's look a little bit at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for righteousness and justice they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I won't be looking today... At these eight Beatitudes in any depth, if you want to go deeper into them, and I encourage you to do so, I can offer you two approaches. One, you may want to go back to season four, which the entire season was about the Beatitudes. I think it's maybe 16 or 18 weeks. Or secondly, you could go to uh, the last book most recent book that I've written, which is called The Beatitudes for a Time of Crisis. And I would encourage you to get the book. Um, I think we'll talk a little more later about how to get that. But I would encourage you to get that book if you want my most thorough teaching on the Beatitudes. Um, there's so much to see in each of these eight Beatitudes. And I purposely drew from from contemporary writing, a book published just months ago, last July, all the way back to uh, the end of the first century. I purposely drew from evangelical mainline, from Catholic, from Orthodox, because we need all of these streams. So that's why I'm not going to—I resisted the temptation. I'm not going to go through these eight, but you you can go deeper, either through the podcast or through the book. Now, if the, if the Sermon on the Mount is, is the greatest concentration of Jesus' teaching, and I think clearly it is, then the Beatitudes are the core or the nucleus of that teaching. Um, they reflect the inner reality of how God sees me. Those of you who were watching a couple of weeks ago, our friend Sherith Nordling, she said the Father sees you and I through the perfected, finished work of Jesus. Um, another way of saying it is he sees us from the other side of the cross. So the Beatitudes bring this this reflection of the inner reality of God sees us, how he sees us. But secondly, they provide a litmus test. They provide a, a standard that continually makes room for the Holy Spirit in my heart. Um, the Beatitudes help me to understand my surroundings and others <clears throat> Excuse me, from God's perspective now i want to I want to focus on i think four words today. The first is blessing. this is why they're called the beatitudes, the blessings now, as is often the case, English has not got the the richness of meaning of nuance that Greek has macarius um in the 17th century, the writers of the King James Version chose the word blessed, blessed are the poor, uh, <clears throat> which meant something consecrated to God. Um, and the word Macarius, blessed, can mean fortunate, well-off, favored, blissful. Uh, one of the weaker translations is happy, <clears throat> because I think that the, the connotations of Macarius go much deeper than the emotion of happiness. In the early church, blessed or Macarius evolved into a meaning of ultimate joy of sharing in the life of God. And they said there was no higher gift than to be blessed. Um, that within this context, to be blessed means to participate in the life of the Trinity. I've taught about that before. Um perichoresis is the word. It's this divine dance between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the eternal, joyful, other-centered dance that's always taking place within the Trinity. The early church understood that blessing was about our invitation to share in this divine dance, to share in God's immortality, but to share in his divine life, this perichoresis right now. Jesus does not put blessings in the future. Uh, in each beatitude, he says, blessed are. He's not telling his disciples, just hang in there. He's declaring to them that in spite of how the world may seem to them, even in spite of how they're feeling, in spite of persecution and difficulties, he's saying you are blessed right now. A second word I want to look at might surprise you. It's the word ladder. Um, the Beatitudes are not requirements for blessing. They're an invitation, an invitation based upon reality from Christ's eternal perspective. But they invite us to come to use C.S. Lewis's term uh, further in and further up. Uh, of a number of the early church fathers use the image of a ladder to describe this Beatitude journey. They insisted that the order in which Jesus presented the Beatitudes was not arbitrary. Instead, each Beatitude prepared the way for the next Beatitude. Now, it's really, really important we get this. This is not a ladder of merit or achievement or approval. Each Beatitude, rather, is an invitation, invitation to a new way of living both internally and externally, built upon a growing intimacy and identification with this beautiful Jesus. Understanding the beatitude as rungs, we've got to be careful not to see them as a method or a way by which we can become better disciples. They're not something to which we attain. They are certainly not a way to knowing more about God they reflect the journey of possessing him within ourselves. So let me give you a short example. Again, we're we're covering a fair bit today, but here's how they're like a ladder, how each beatitude builds upon the one before it. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, This is the first of the beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3. I think it's actually the the key that unlocks all of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then blessed are those who mourn, and then blessed are the meek or the gentle. In fact, it could be the patient or the humble. And then we move into blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. It's because we move slowly through each one of these, that when we get to, for example, this fourth beatitude, we don't fall into anger or frustration or judgment. And when that starts to rise up in us, as we're looking for justice and righteousness, when that begins to rise up, it sends us right back to the first rung. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I talk a lot more about this in the book and in the series. The third word I want to look at is paradox. This is a really important word. One of our sweatshirts says embrace the paradox. Why did we put that out there? Because as modern Christians, especially those who are evangelicals, we are really deep down uncomfortable with mystery, with with paradox, with things that don't seem to fit, because we tend to see the Bible as propositional truth. This is how God operates. This is how life works. Before the Enlightenment, the church was completely comfortable with mystery. That was part of the richness of the gospel. It was okay to simply not know. And they knew that there could be more than one right answer, or there could be no answer at all. But in our world, both as believers and in our culture, we're always looking for certainty. We think certainty brings us security. But what Jesus calls us into is not a life of knowing, of certainty, but of faith. So here's the paradox. Well, there's several, but here's a paradox of the Beatitudes. On the one hand, the Beatitudes invite and lead me up to a higher place in Christ, but at the very same time, they are an invitation to follow him downward into a deeper place. Jesus said that if anyone would be his disciple, they must take up their cross. In the Beatitudes, he begins to reveal what that means. As I've shared with you before, at the heart of the message of the cross is the word kenosis, emptying. Jesus emptied himself. In the Beatitudes, if we will allow Jesus' words to go really deep, it will take us on our own kenotic, self-emptying journey. Slowly and surely, we will lose our lives and find his. And isn't that his promise? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In this beatitude journey, we discover our true self. The the journey upward into Christ's perspective of us takes us downward to our own place of great, almost undefinable need. It takes us to the place of being poor in spirit. That's why I said it's like the foundational key for for this whole sermon the the journey inward which the beatitudes will take us into if we will embrace them seriously the journey inward with its pain and its growing understanding of our true selves paradoxically will lead us outward filled with more and more of christ's heart for a broken world in, in this part of, this is part of being blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. He comforts us in the morning of our realization, our self-realization. He comforts us as our eyes are open to the morning around us that there's comfort there. So we need to embrace paradox if we're going to take seriously the work of the Beatitudes fourth word, biography. As we allow the Beatitudes to move deeply and slowly in us, we will increasingly enter into what Paul called the mystery of Christ. The Beatitudes reveal Jesus. They've been called the biography of Jesus. The Beatitudes are who he is. Let me just Give you a few examples to consider for each beatitude is biography. Jesus is the self emptying one, Philippians 2. He is the one who is poor in spirit. Jesus is the one who weeps over the pain of the world. Jesus is the one who came meek and gentle upon a colt. He even said, Learn from me for I am meek and lowly. Jesus is the one who proclaimed justice to the nations. Jesus is the merciful one. Jesus is the one who more than anyone who ever lived was pure in heart. Jesus was the prince of peace. Talk about being a peacemaker. Jesus is the one who was reviled and persecuted but never fought back. The Beatitudes not only help me to keep centered in Christ, they help me to begin to recognize what he's doing all around me as well as in me. I often talk about the journey of learning to follow Jesus, learning to follow the rhythm of the kingdom. And the Beatitudes are key for that journey. So this same life... His biography is what is in me. It's not something to attain to. It's recognizing I'm already blessed. He's already in me. The Beatitudes teach me not to do something but to live out of his life that is very real within me. They're not about me trying to be poor in spirit or meek or pure in heart. They're about his life living in me. I think he, probably with a chuckle, but kindly gave me an illustration of this, this week. I was, just as I was spending time with Jesus, I specifically was asking for the grace, the help to approach things with gentleness, with meekness. And in, in, in a minute, I'll talk about how the Beatitudes and, and prayer connect. But, but in my prayer, it was, Lord, please, I want to live with gentleness this week. And then, I think it was just yesterday, I stepped into a situation where I felt offended. And I responded in anger. Now, the only one who really knew I was angry happened to be my son, because he was around when I got angry. But then this morning, I felt like the Lord just showed me something again. you know how he shows you things in layers? He showed me it was not about trying to be gentle. I think I will always fail at that. But rather this morning, he gave me a fresh awareness of of the meek, and mourning, and poor in spirit that he is, that Jesus is within me, and what he's feeling. And what he felt is not what I felt. So the awareness of my offense and anger took me back yet again today to blessed are the poor in spirit. I did not go back groveling, Lord, I'm so sorry, I blew it, I blew it, I blew it. I've I've been on that prayer journey before probably lots of us have but rather oh you're in me and I'm in you John 14:10 and so it took me back to where I, the stillness of him being poured in spirit within me and once again my heart became still Psalm 46:10 be still and know that I am God. Uh, Psalm 131, I have stilled and quieted my soul. (sighs) Like a weaning child. Let me give you one more grid for understanding this, crucifixion and resurrection. Perhaps as I said more than any other word that describes the journey of following Jesus is kenosis. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship, famously wrote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus' most frequent saying was, Whoever seeks to save his life loses it, whoever loses it for my sake finds it. Paul writes of being crucified with Christ, of being buried with him. But it doesn't stop there. It is a call to both crucifixion and resurrection. The Beatitudes are Jesus' daily invitation into this journey. Each Beatitude describes both crucifixion and resurrection. Death to my ego self and discovering his eternal life within me. I just gave you an example from this week. Excuse me. When... When we begin to look at the Beatitudes through this crucifixion and resurrection grid, it brings us into a deep discovery of our true selves. It it brings us to a stark honesty, but always covered with this incredible, unwavering love and acceptance and hope. Because here we're back to the paradox. The crucified life is the only way to the resurrected life. The Beatitudes take us to a place of great intimacy with the one who lived and folks who continues to live in me, in you, in this way. So there's crucifixion and resurrection. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the land. Most of your Bibles say the earth, the land for reasons you can read about is a, really a better translation. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. They'll be satisfied. Do you see that this crucifixion resurrection paradigm is about truth and grace? And, and John's prologue said that Christ, he, he's filled with truth and grace, right? John 1, 14. So let me finish. Several years ago, One of my spiritual teachers encouraged me to memorize the Beatitudes, and they have become a foundational part of my prayer life. As I pray each one, I just take time. I'm not in a hurry. My prayer life has slowed down more and more and more. And usually I find that the Holy Spirit will will park me at one or more of this be, these beatitudes on any given day or any given time of prayer. And this leads me inevitably to go deeper into meditation, to listening. The beatitudes are a key component of my journey of pursuing the riches of the mystery of Christ, as Paul called it in Ephesians 2. This is This has become what by the way, is, is now about a 10-year journey, I believe will be a lifelong journey. The Beatitudes are something that I can go back to at any time during my day. And often the Holy Spirit prompts me, like in the car today, and I have shared some of that journey. So I encourage any of you to take the time to memorize these eight Beatitudes and then let the holy spirit move in your heart through them as i've tried to articulate today the beatitudes reveal christ at so many levels so once again i purposely did not use this time to teach on each of the beatitudes you can either listen to season 4 or or get my book the beatitudes for a time of crisis which goes beyond the podcast series but i wanted us to i wanted to come up a level from that and talk about What pulls them all together? What makes them like nothing else? What makes them so transformative? And what makes them something that paradoxically lifts me up to Christ and takes me down deep into Christ? Thanks for listening. In the next few moments, Tim's going to join me and we're going to have a follow-up discussion on this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. God bless you.
0: Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, the Beatitudes. It all seemed so familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I I kind of miss doing that series. Um, I would encourage our listeners. I know you said it a few times, but uh, if you if you're new to the Impact Nations podcast. Uh, and, and you just you want to dig in deeper into what was touched on today. Season four, we we did. I don't remember how many episodes it was, but it was at, sixteen or 18. Yeah, at times it was definitely more than one episode per beatitude. Yes, uh, really, really in depth look. So um, more
1: than one chapter per beatitude too. Indeed. Right
0: yeah. So uh, that's this is a good time for an ad, and you you kind of beat me to the punch uh, a moment ago because you talked about the book, but I'm going to talk about the book too. Um, if you by any chance do not own this book, well, what's the matter with you? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This, this book uh, is, uh, it's a huge encouragement to me. I actually, I still have it sitting uh, next to my, my regular morning time chair and, and at times just pick it up and and reread sections of it. Um, It's a, it's a huge encouragement to me. It's going to be a huge encouragement to you too. So if you haven't purchased it yet, uh, impactnations.com slash Beatitudes, I think. Uh, I, don't, I don't have the lower third in front of me. I can't see it. I, is that right? Beatitudes. I'm getting a thumbs up from the booth. It is, if if you can spell Beatitudes, impactnations.com slash Beatitudes. Um, and if you already own the book and you haven't read it yet, Pick it up and read it this week. Uh, if you already read it, pick up, read a chapter. Uh, it's fantastic, and Thanks. it'll be a great encouragement to you. Uh, while we're in advertisement mode, by the way, I should just real quick update people. The last several weeks, uh, folks, you've heard me talking about the uh, Survive to Thrive campaign, which is rescuing these pregnant teens uh, from Kampala, uh, getting them the help they need to get medical care uh throughout their pregnancy, uh, cover the cost of labor and delivery, all those things. I am really excited to tell you that we uh, have just about reached our goal. We set a deadline of May 23rd, which is just a few days from now. Uh, and uh, we are currently, I, I just hit refresh before I walked in here. We're at like 19,200 something out of our 20,000. The cool thing is we've got matching funds on that. So actually all of that is doubled. So you've got just a few more days. If you haven't yet given uh, head to impactnationscom slash thrive, give today. Um, I think we're going to surpass our goal. Uh, the impact nations family is always just uh, amazing at that. Uh, so I'm looking forward to reporting more on that, but I, for those who have given, thank you so much. Um, Thanks for sharing that with your friends as well, telling them about what we're doing. Um, Oh, and one last thing. I probably mentioned it last week too, but last Wednesday we had Annabelle here. Uh, If you haven't yet seen that, do carve out an hour of your day at some point. Maybe listen to it during your commute. Uh, It it would have been released on the audio podcast. It's also in our YouTube feed. Uh, But anytime we can have one of our partners uh with us on the podcast, sharing some stories, just sharing their heart of of what God has called them to and how impact nations is partnering with them uh it's a huge win and we had we had Annabelle here last week, and she, it was terrific yeah, she knocked it out of the park uh, and a little teaser just while we're on business here um in just a couple of weeks, watch your email, watch Facebook and stuff. We're going to have an invite for you, uh, for a night with Randeep as well. Uh, and that's going to be a special by invite only sort of thing on zoom. So you'll be logging in you'll be able to spend time with Randeep here, some stories about what's going on in India, uh, be able to, to pray over him and, and just say hi to some old friends that maybe you haven't seen since the last time you journeyed to India or something like that. So, uh, watch out for that too. I love the impact nations family, man. We're having fun. <laughs> All right. Um, Let's talk just a little bit more about uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, and the Beatitudes, I suppose, as well. Um, you you read uh, Isaiah 25, which was really interesting, and I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but... It, Many, many times it makes it so clear that he's calling everyone up to the mountain. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it used the word all, like a quick count in in the version you were reading, it used the word all five times. Mm. Um, And then says it's going to remove disgrace from God's people. Can you talk just a little bit more about what Matthew's doing here in terms of the inclusive gospel? Um, Why... Why is particularly for Matthew this so important? this concept of everyone's invited?
1: Okay. Um, well, it's a growing theme through this gospel. I think that uh, I think one of the most important things to remember is that the Jewish audience would have known these two Isaiah passages. Mm-hmm. Chapter two, chapter twenty-five, and that they are—they are not just forward-looking, but they're like culmination passages, especially twenty-five, and that what I think uh, is implied there is—is is that some this huh, tectonic shift hmm. has taken place, yeah. and now we're moving toward the end game, as mm-hmm. it were, and um, so. That of course includes all, but but right there to his Jewish audience, it would be oh, now it's happening! Yeah. Now it's happening. Hmm.
0: Um, just a, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about a word you you today as often you do. You kind of I like to say you geeked out on the Church Fathers a little bit and read three three uh, quotes from Church Fathers, two of whom uh, used the word precepts. Which precepts is a word that's not used regularly in everyday conversation in English, uh, and I
1: didn't even notice that uh, two of them use that Yeah, word. and
0: the word precepts um, quite literally would is defined by laws or, or guidelines, rules or guidelines. Guidelines, yeah. Um, and yet, I know that you're challenging us to say, see beyond the you know, this isn't just a new set of laws that Christ is giving us, but rather an invitation. Yeah. Um, it, Why? why do they
1: talk about heavenly precepts? Okay. Heavenly realities, the way heaven works. Yeah. And I think that we're going to see in the rest of the sermon that Jesus is articulating heaven now. This is the way it works. I'm going to talk in a few weeks about forgiveness. Hmm. And we can either see it as a principle, well, we just need to forgive or God won't forgive us. Yeah. Or we can see it as uh, Jesus revealing this is the whole movement of God yeah. is in forgiveness. I'll use that as, a, as an example.
0: Yeah. Good.
1: Um,
0: you, you, I had started typing out a question and you kind of got there, but maybe we can just revisit it one more time because I think it's really important. The Beatitudes in your prayer life um, – you know, you said we. It's not about just trying to to be more meek. It's not like I just got to try harder to be more yeah. meek or or poor of spirit or whatever. But rather, it's inviting. It, it's stepping into the invitation to to live out His life uh, in us. Yep. How? Give us an example of how you pray through a beatitude.
1: Cheapers, mm, never the same way twice. <laughs> but. um Let's use the example that I was very self-disclosing on yes. today. I felt like the Holy Spirit a couple of days ago just kind of hovered over, "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land." And so, at one level, I can begin to pray into that, Lord, uh, and and you know, I can become my prayer life can become a thesaurus you know, humble, Mm. (laughs) patient, which is a key part of meekness, et cetera. And so I can pray that, and that's all good. But there's a sense in which I just settle down and I'm quiet, and I begin to enter into or sense the character of Christ in meekness. And what came out of that was... Not only a desire, but frankly, I I felt a grace to be operating in gentleness. Mm. And then, of course, he brought me back to reality after a couple of days, when suddenly, you know, I got offended. Um, but what did that do? Honestly, honestly, it didn't drive me back. Oh God, I blew it again. I blew it again. Um, I've got that T-shirt. <laughs> it it w- took me back. To how he is and how he, not theoretically, but how he is right now. Yeah. And the poor in spirit, the the willing to empty himself. And and it wasn't, I got to just imitate you, although there's certainly imitation in following Jesus. Yeah. But more, I this is the life. This is yeah. my true life. Mm-hmm. And um, is that clear enough, giving you an example? I think so, yeah. Um, hey,
0: we're going to wrap up here, folks, but... If you're I know there's several people watching live online right now. I do we do have uh the chat available to us here in the studio. So if you guys have questions in the future, be sure to just even type them in during the teaching, uh even if it's just a comment, uh things like that. We can we'd love to discuss your questions, your comments right here in this space at the end of the teaching. Uh you can even write to us uh in this moment. We've got them, got the comments live here in front of us. Um do you want to just tease out a little bit of what's coming in the next few weeks? How many weeks are you going to take on the sermon on the mount, you think?
1: Um, I'm guessing that I'll do uh, maybe five weeks, which yeah. is pretty quick, but I think I'm <laughs> yeah. going to take five weeks. Yeah. And and what we're going to see is that um, it's really important, uh, the whole Mosaic framework. That's why it took some time on the mountain. Yeah. And we're going to see that he is the new Moses. And it's not just a new law, though. In one sense, he's like a lawgiver, yeah. but um, but it's it's this shift again. But it becomes very tangible, very tangible. And the very first, pardon me, the thing we're going to deal with next week, two things, I think. But but the second one is five seventeen to twenty, which is. The much-discussed passage, I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill the law. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's been books and books and books written on that. I'm going to try and dive into that and, and make it practical and sensical. Yeah. Uh, but then from there, it starts to go, okay, now this affects our relationships. Yeah. It reflects our heart's attitude, our generosity, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's where we're
0: going. That's going to that's gonna be good. Um, I hope you're making notes in your Bible as as we go through this. Uh, I don't know about you. I love I I do a digital Bible, and I love to a, a year later, or whenever I I revisit these uh, these books of the Bible to discover rich notes that remind me again. Uh, I would encourage you to do that, um, folks. We are here every thursday at 3 p.m mountain daylight time uh we'd love for you to join us live on youtube uh if you can't be with us live uh on a thursday afternoon then you can definitely watch again on youtube uh, anytime after that isaiah's got it all organized in a really nice playlist of course if you are a regular listener on the uh, audio podcast uh, we'd love to hear from you uh send us a note uh, podcast at impactnations.com we'd love to just hear about how this is encouraging you uh we're getting Word from really all over the place, uh, from places that we've never been. That I don't, I don't know how they discovered us, but uh, we're just so glad to have you listening. Uh, we're so, so encouraged to hear that uh, this is just um, building you up in your faith. So. Um, Thanks again for, for listening. Uh, do us a favor. If you are listening on, a, uh, on the audio podcast, go ahead, give us a five-star review. Uh, how's that for presumptuous? Give us a five-star review uh, in, uh, in Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast uh, player you're listening to. That just really helps us, again, get the word out. Because uh, yeah. a number of times we've actually heard of people who uh, they were listening to another podcast, and it recommended this one as a similar one, too. So uh, the more more people, the merrier, as far Lots as Lots of
1: ways that we're looking for to, to share to get that word Absolutely. out. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you have heard me say a few times, I'll say it one more time again, uh, it's not too late. You can share this uh, just as we're wrapping up. Go ahead, hit the share button, uh, put it onto your social media feed, use the hashtag ImpactNations and you will immediately and automatically be entered to win a, a $40 gift card for the Impact Nations store where you could actually buy the embrace the paradox paraphernalia such as a mug wow, or a t-shirt or something like that there you go so you could you could embrace people while while wearing an embrace the paradox shirt uh, wow it might be too too meta i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> hey thank you so much everybody for being with us today thank you for listening uh we're looking forward to being with you again next week god bless god bless you